Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Grab our Bibles um, and turn to Acts chapter 2. Uh, that's a passage I just read a second ago. Particularly, we'll be looking at verses 42 uh, through 47 today. So it's the end of Acts chapter 2. Uh, that's right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Luke is the writer of Acts. Uh, so this is kind of volume 2 of uh, Luke's Gospel. So you have the Gospel of Luke and then you have Acts. So that's where we are. And this we'll be considering this morning, perhaps, uh, as you just heard it read, it's a passage that you've probably heard before. It's a popular passage if you've been in church for any time, um, and I bet most pastors have preached this sermon at some point. It would be an excellent uh, first sermon because it breaks down easy. You have those four things, the apostles' teaching, the breaking of the breads, the prayer, and fellowship, and so it breaks down easily into a nice sermon. I was dumb enough to try to preach Romans 7 for my first sermon. Some of you may have been there for that because I preached it from this very pulpit, um, but I don't advise that. Acts chapter 2 would be a much uh, cleaner one to look at um, if you're ever looking to preach your first sermon. And it has clear application. Why are we dealing with it this morning? Because here we are uh, in the middle of this series and really getting towards the end of the series. We'll have this week and we'll finish this series next week. This week will actually be your last week in that personal revival guide that you have. And um, what we've been seeing established in kind of the, the way that prayer guide, that revival guide is going, is trying to reset some of those rhythms in our lives. The rhythms of confessing our sin before the Lord, seeking the Lord through His Word, through prayer, through dedicating yourself over and over to His service week by week, day by day. And so what we see are these rhythms being set, and, and perhaps you're, you're, you're beginning to wonder what will it look like, what will it feel like if we experience what we're praying for, this renewal, this revival that we're talking about throughout the month of uh, January and now getting into February. There's certain metrics that we probably have in mind sometimes when we're thinking about renewal or revival, and some of those metrics are what will it look like, things like, or feel like, things like emotions or decisions or attendance, and those are all great things. But here's the deal. I love how uh, Jared Wilson said it, that God has appointed shepherds and not accountants as, as pastors, and sometimes shepherds are, are looking for different metrics, different things as they look for renewal and spiritual vitality in people, in a congregation, and even in our own hearts. Now, now to be certain, in our text this morning, you see some of those accounting metrics, right? Those quantifiable metrics. The Lord added to their number 3,000. Right? And even at the end of the passage, and the Lord added to their number day by day. So even when we're talking about spiritual leadership, there, are, there is some counting that goes on. There is a certain membership that we see in our own congregation, people that we count, people that we know, people that we look for. And so you see that there. Nevertheless, shepherds are looking for, for more than that. They're looking for more than just the bottom line. They're concerned with things that are sometimes harder to measure. Not always how many, but also how healthy Are we seeing a love for Jesus, a love for his word, a love for his church, a a love for each other? So 
when we talk about this personal revival, God, when we talk about reestablishing those rhythms in our lives where we're seeking the Lord and praying for that renewal, what does it mean to be living by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit and being a Spirit-filled church? Luke, in Acts chapter 2, gives us this wonderful cameo, this wonderful snapshot, if you will, of, of what this, this early church looked like from the very beginning. Fresh off of Pentecost, fresh off of the Spirit coming down upon the believers and filling the believers and the Word of God going out, what does it look like for a church to be experiencing that fullness of the Spirit? And what you might discover is even to this day, even to this very hour, the rhythms that we have as believers, the rhythms that we have as a church are coming out of this, they're kind of these aftershocks of this initial earthquake. And so what we see here is the epicenter, the spirit coming, coming down and how that still has an effect on us to this very hour. So get the picture. Building up into this end of Acts chapter 2. Get the picture of what's going on here. The Spirit comes as Jesus has promised. Remember the early church. There's about 120 of them once Jesus leaves the earth and ascends into heaven to the right hand of the Father. They're praying. They're in the upper room praying. They, they, they appoint a, another apostle as Judas has died and has gone out from them. And then the Spirit comes down upon them just as Jesus has promised And the nations hear of the mighty works of God, and the great commission is beginning. What's going on in Acts chapter 2, as some have described it, is this great reversal of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis? Where the people got together, the Bible says, in order to make a name for themselves. We were designed to make Jesus' name great, the name of God great, right? And so they got together in order to make a name for themselves, and they all had one common language, and so who could stop them? And so what does God do? God comes down and he confuses their language and spreads them out over the face of the earth so that they might do what they were called to do, as it says in Genesis chapter 1, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with his glory. They were disobeying the Lord, trying to make a name for themselves, and so God puts this curse, this language upon them in order to spread them out. So here at Pentecost, when the Spirit comes down, all of a sudden they all hear this common language, and in this moment filled with the Spirit where they have this common language, they declare the mighty works of God and make the name of Jesus proclaiming, proclaim the name of Jesus from their lips. The very thing that we were designed to do, the great commandment, the great commission is being fulfilled. Not to make a name for themselves, but to make Christ known. And so Peter preaches. He preaches the sermon in Acts chapter 2. And the church is formed. You know, I was thinking this week, I wonder if this is a, a little bit of the picture of, a, of the Garden of Eden, right? Where God speaks out of this chaos, God, God forms this orderly creation and creates his people and puts them in a particular place to enjoy his presence. And now... Through the preaching of the Apostle Peter, God proclaims his word to the people through the power of the Spirit. And in this moment, God forms his people that they might enjoy his presence once again. That they might do what they are called to do to enjoy him and to fill the earth with his glory. 
So we see this glorious picture of God reversing the curse of Babel. God recreating, as it were, his covenantal people through the preaching of his word. God is creating his purpose, his people. And in that, he gives them this common purpose and this common unity, this togetherness that we still long for this day. There's this sense of a common purpose. There's this sense of a, of a common identity. And with a spirit, as it describes here in Acts, of wonder and anticipation of what God might do and through them, Luke gives us, so God, fresh out of God forming his people. It's, it's, it's almost like, like, like I was saying, going back to the garden. God, give us a glimpse of what it was like when people enjoyed you completely without the effects of sin. Now, they're still sinful people, so I'm not saying it was perfect at this moment. Give us a picture of what it was like fresh out of Pentecost, fresh out of the coming of the Spirit. What were the people doing? What were their rhythms? What were their patterns so that we can go about doing and seeing and experiencing what it is like to live a Spirit-filled life? Listen to what they were devoted to. Acts chapter 2.42. So people are being saved. God's adding to the church God's doing this wonderful thing, filling them with the Spirit, just as he rep- promised. And he says, all of you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, all who repent and believe and trust in Jesus. As God formed the church, look at this picture. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now here's where it breaks down easy. You see those four things there. These four patterns. Perhaps you've seen them in this revival guide. Prayer, breaking the bread, apostles teaching, prayer, all of these things that we're asking the Lord to establish in our lives. Notice the first thing that they were de- dedicated to. What would we be dedicated to if we began to see this great growth in the church? Here's what they were consumed with. Here's what they were devoted to. Here's what they knew that they needed to be about doing if they were to live lives filled with the Spirit. The first thing that you noticed here, that they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, now Jesus had promised this. When the Spirit comes, Jesus says, he will teach you. John 14, 26 says this, when the Spirit comes, he will teach you and he will help you remember the things of Jesus. John 16, 13, Jesus says, the Spirit will guide you in all truth. And John 17 says, you will be sanctified by the truth. God's word is truth. The Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. And so all who desire to be filled with the Spirit and to live this Pentecostal life, we must desire the true milk of the Word of God. Or we could say it like this. If we are to be Spirit-filled people, we must be Word-filled people because the work of the Spirit in our lives is to show us the things of Jesus, to teach us the things about Jesus, and to remember the things about Jesus so that we might be sanctified and become more like Jesus. So to be spirit-filled people, to be a spirit-filled church, we must be a word-filled church. We must desire God's word. We must desire to know God's word. We must feast on God's word. What is the apostles teaching? Now we have it in the canon of scripture that is now closed. The Old Testament and New Testament. This is 
God's word. This is what we desire. I'd suffice it to say that generally as a culture and generally as Christians in the West, we aren't struggling with being too biblically literate. Did you hear that? Have you ever thought about that before? Do you think our culture struggles with, we just know too much. We're too literate in the word. This is one reason we do things like the gospel project with the kids every Sunday morning so that they're literate in the storyline of scripture so that they will know it. It wasn't really until seminary where I kind of got the grasp of the storyline of scripture that it's all Christ from Genesis to Revelation. I don't know how I missed it, but I don't want the next generation to miss that. Like most things these days, we have an abundance of accessibility that leads to a lack of practice or at least a lack of appreciation. I often describe it with pictures on a phone. We have about 8,000 pictures in our pocket all the time, but we don't have those precious family photos that we pass down from generation to generation. They've kind of lost their importance because everybody has pictures all, the, all times, all places. Anytime you ask, you can take a picture. So it goes with the word of God. We have it on our phones. We have it on Twitter. We have it everywhere you look. You see the word of God. But sometimes familiarity breeds lack of appreciation. We talk about the Bible. We read books about the Bible and blog posts about the Bible. I'm talking about myself included here. We use the Bible to prepare sermons, Sunday school lessons. We use the Bible to argue for positions on social and political issues. In short, sometimes we can do everything with the Bible except read the Bible. Anybody guilty of that? Yeah, I am. And here's the thing about biblical literacy or biblical illiteracy. When we neglect reading the Bible, we don't just miss knowledge, we miss God. For in this book, we meet with God. We see what he has to say. We worship him and commune with him as he speaks to us, even to this hour in his holy word. We are so privileged to worship a God who makes himself known to us. And sometimes we miss it. We miss communion with God. We miss our own spiritual health. Jesus even said, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the Father's mouth at stake is our very health. I wonder if we're spending a lot of time, think about this just for a second. What are you consuming? If you just consume junk food, we do something with our kids like this is an everyday food, this is a sometimes food, this is every once in a while food, so that they know what is healthy and something they just can't eat all the time. I, I would step out on a limb here and say that we are consuming as a culture so much junk that it's deteriorating our souls. It's like... We're just like drinking Coke and eating Snicker bars each and every day. And it's just deteriorating us from the inside out. And you wonder why our world is just like so low-key angry all the time. Have you noticed that before? I find myself doing that. I have to delete social media for weeks on time because I look at it. I'm just angry. I'm always mad about something. 
Because that's what I'm consuming. That's what I'm eating. That's what's filling me and deteriorates our souls. Malnourishment is at stake. Communion with God is at stake. The early church knew that we must be devoted to the word of God if we are to be a healthy church. And what we talked about with personal revival, if God is going to renew us and do a thing among us, he must do a thing in us individually, right? We love saying we are the church as people. And that means as people, individuals, we must seek this together. Maybe that's renewing your daily Bible study time. Maybe that's joining a small group, joining a Sunday school group so that you can be in the word and have that accountability week in and week out. A spirit-filled church devotes themselves to the apostles' teaching. You see here that they devote themselves to fellowship as well. It doesn't just stop with Bible study or knowing the word. You see here that they are devoted to the fellowship. And we know this, right? That fellowship is more than a hall. Every church has a fellowship hall. It's more than a potluck. Those, those can be part of it. This word fellowship literally means to share in common with. And you see that clearly in this passage, don't you? That everything they had, they had in common together. Every possession they had, they were together all the time, sharing possessions. They lived life together. And so an early church, the early church, a church filled with the Spirit is a church that's in the Word and it's a church that is fellowshipping together. The Bible describes it like this, that believers are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. That we share a common identity. We share a relationship with Jesus Christ. That you look around this room today and you say, that's my brother, that's my sister. Sometimes I remember, I miss saying that, right? Like brother this, brother that, sister this, sister that. Kind of got out of vogue. But here these folks knew that they were together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That not only do we have this common identity in Jesus Christ, we have this common power in us that's empowering us to do the will of the Lord. That God, is the Spirit, is indwelling all of us as believers. Peter says it in his sermon. All who believe are indwelled with the Spirit. I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying this at a conference Aaron and I attended right before COVID hit in Minneapolis. I remember this clearly. He says, if God is not ashamed to indwell a brother or sister with his spirit, who are we to think that somehow we can treat them other than a beloved child of God? That when we look at our family of faith, that we're studying the Bible together, that we're living life together, that we're bound in the spirit together, that we have fellowship with the spirit, we say God's spirit indwells him and God is glad to do it. He's not ashamed to be called their God. I'm not ashamed to be their brother or sister. And I'm going to treat them as a beloved child of God. I'm not going to treat them as a pawn. I'm not going to treat them as garbage. I'm going to talk to them differently. I think sometimes we are so consumed with, we should be careful with that, the way we speak to the world, and then we treat our brothers and sisters like, like they don't matter. If God is not ashamed to indwell a brother or sister with his spirit, who are we to think that somehow we can treat them other than the beloved child of God? We share that in common, in Christ, 
in the Spirit. The Bible also talks about fellowship with being gospel partnership, that not only do we share the same identity, not only do we share the same indwelled power of the Spirit in us, but we share a same mission. We're all going after this together. We are fellowshipping around the gospel and fellowshipping, sharing in common with this mission to get the gospel to our own hearts, to our own city, and to our own nation, and to our own world. These folks had everything in common with each other. And this was more than physical. This was a spiritual fellowship that they enjoyed. In fact, it says that they went together to the temple day by day. They were with one heart and with one soul. They were experiencing true Christian community. Brothers and sisters, if we want to experience that renewal that we're praying for, if we want to experience what they're experiencing here, where God is adding to their numbers, we better check with how we are fellowshipping with one another. And we must make that a priority. Here's one equation that I shared in one of our recent new members classes. As I encourage people to be plugged into a smaller group, whether that's Sunday school or a small group, that proximity plus awareness equals responsibility. That as we enjoy this fellowship in Christ through the Spirit with this gospel partnership in mind, this mission in mind, we're all together in one mind after this one thing with the gospel in our heart, city, nation, and world. That we must be near people in proximity with one another so that they might be aware of even our physical needs. And in that, we have a responsibility to take care of our brothers and sisters. That's what we see in, the spirit, in, in, this, in this early church, right? That they knew they were bound in one spirit and that when a brother or sister was struggling with something, that they were selling everything. Anyone who had need, they made sure they were taken care of. Now, this is not like communism coming forth here. This is not a forced redistribution of wealth, you see. This was someone who was filled with the Spirit, caring about their brothers and sisters, knowing that in proximity as they lived next to each other, as they fellowshiped with one another, they were aware of needs, so they took responsibility to help their brothers and sisters in Christ. And this family, this fellowship, was a powerful witness to the world. We ask that question all the time. How can I be a powerful witness in this Community. They will know that we're Christians by the way we love one another. What will compel them is a community of faith that's living in fellowship with one another. So what's the rhythm? We saw the rhythm in the first. We need to get in the word. The rhythm here is to show up and to show up with purpose and to live in relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. The third thing that you see here, so this early church filled with the Spirit, fresh offing, off receiving the Spirit, God doing this wonderful thing among them, what they began to devote themselves to was the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and now to the breaking of bread. Now, there's some discussion here of what they're talking about here. Are they talking about the Lord's Supper, or are they talking about sharing a common meal? So half of my commentaries say Lord's Supper only. Some of them say just meals, common meals only. It was probably a little bit of both. They probably shared the Lord's Supper in the context of a common meal. 
And so what they're saying here, as we fellowship together, an important part of living a spirit-filled life, get this, is not only celebrating the Lord's Supper together, it's sharing meals together. Have you thought about that before? That's something that will be compelling in our witness and living through the power of the Spirit is brothers and sisters breaking bread together in their homes, it says. They went to the temple together day by day. But it also says in verse 46 that they broke bread in their homes and they received food with glad and generous hearts. This is getting more and more difficult, right? We spent the last two years separated. Now you can order DoorDash and Uber Eats and whatever else and have it at your door and you can pay like $75 for a Big Mac, right? And you never have to see anybody. And people are making a lot of money off of it. That's not very compelling. We must be people who meet in large groups and small groups. People are filled by the Spirit having people in their homes together. This idea of hospitality. In the midst of a broken and angry world, we feast. I often think of Babette's Feast. Have you ever seen that movie, Babette's Feast? Where this lady who lives in this very pious, uh, uh, piousistic society wins the lottery and she spends all her money in preparing this wonderful French feast. And as they get together and celebrate this feast, God awakens their hearts to the beauty and the taste and the wonders of who he is. I just bought a little book called Every Moment Holy. And they have liturgies throughout this book and they have one for sharing a common meal. And here's the prayer that comes from this book. It says, May this shared meal and our pleasure in it bear witness against the artifice and the deceptions of the prince of darkness that would blind this world to hope. May it strike at the root of the lie that would drain life of meaning and the world of joy and suffering of redemption. May this feast fall like a great hammer blow against that brittle night, shattering the gloom, reawakening our hearts, stirring our imaginations, focusing our vision on the kingdom of heaven that is to come, on the kingdom that is promised, on the kingdom that is already indeed among us, for the resurrection of all good things has already joyfully begun. Imagine eating like that with brothers and sisters around the table, striking a death blow to the prince of darkness, saying, yes, this world is messed up and dark, but in the midst of this darkness, we feast. And it tastes good. And it reminds us of resurrection. It reminds us of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And by the way we share a meal, we declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. That would be compelling. Would it not? If we received our food, here it says, with this glad and generous hearts, as we gathered with other believers, saying, praise God for taste buds. Praise God for family filled with the Spirit. Praise God that in this dark world, we get to dine. And one day he will return and we will dine with him forevermore. It changed the way they eat. It changed the way they fellowshiped. It changed the way they read their Bible and studied the apostles' teaching. And they also devoted themselves not only to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, but also to the, the breaking of the bread, but also to the prayers. We talked about prayer in, in weeks before, so I won't preach that again. But if we are to be a spirit-filled church, 
Again, it comes up again. We must be devoted to prayer. They were praying together. They went to the temple together, it says in verse 46. They broke bread in their home. So they were praying in temple, in large group. They were praying in their homes with small group as they gathered with one another. They were engaged in personal prayer, smaller group prayer, and larger group prayer. They're all about prayer. Derek Thomas, one commentator and a wonderful pastor, said it like this. Hardly anything is more important as a sign of the church's vitality than its commitment to prayer. And so this early church, right off of receiving the Holy Spirit, and we, if we are in Christ, have received this same Spirit, were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to fellowship, through breaking of bread, and to prayer. Look back in verse 42. Listen to this. Sometimes we over, overstep this word because we want to get to those four points. They were steadfast in these things. I think sometimes commitment and devotion and steadfastness is very underrated. We want it now. We want revival. We want it now. Right? We're a very quick, easy, please society. But understand what was going on here. They were steadfast and devoted to all of these things. I remind you of the quote that I shared at the beginning of this series that everyone wants a revolution, but nobody wants to do the dishes. The Lord was adding to their number, the Lord was doing that. They were devoted to being faithful, to praying, to reading to knowing the word, to fellowship, breaking the bread together. And God was giving them favor with the community. It was not that they became some sort of monastic society and cut themselves off from the world. They were reaching out. But what was compelling about that early church was not only that they were gospel proclaimers, but they had a culture among them that was formed by this gospel. As they remain steadfast in these things. So that's the final thing I want to share with you. So those four things. We must be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers. We must be steadfastly devoted to this. And if we are, what we see in this snapshot of this early church, that in and among them, what they began to see is this gospel culture, as one pastor, Ray Ortland puts it, beginning to form. As they were devoted to these rhythms... This gospel culture began to form. What was holding this culture together was that they feared God. Look at verse 43. That awe came upon every soul. What will hold us together as a congregation so that we live out this gospel culture is that if the fear of God is always upon us, and if the awe of God, if the fear of God, if the respect of God, if the reference of the Lord is always in our hearts, on our minds, and on our lips, we will not wander off into worrying about ourselves. Because our heart will be the honor and glory of God himself. Because he's the one we fear. We don't fear what other people think. We don't fear what the word says. We don't fear what people think about us. We fear the name of the Lord. We don't fear our own reputation. So everything that we will be about will come out of our awe and fear of the Lord. 
That's what will hold us together in this gospel culture that's formed as we participate in these rhythms of reading, of praying, of fellowship, of breaking the bread together. They were changed by these rhythms as they feared the Lord. Outsiders were impacted by it. Did you see it there at the end? They praised God and they had favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's no doubt that they were committed to personal evangelism. There's no doubt that they were committed to proclaiming the name of the Lord. People were being added. How would they know unless someone tells them? They were telling people about Christ. They wanted others to experience this community of grace that they were experiencing. This gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. A gospel of grace forms a culture of grace. Does our culture at Riverside reflect the same gospel that we are preaching? They did different things, but they also did different things differently. What was compelling was not their weekly agenda. What was compelling was their community formed by these rhythms, all upon every soul, having favor with all people. Ray Ortland puts it like this. I gave you one equation earlier. I'll give you an equation again. I'm not sure why I'm giving equations. Gospel doctrine minus doctor, doctor, uh, gospel culture equals hypocrites. If we're preaching grace but not living grace and fellowship, and all, we're hypocrites. If we have a gospel culture of grace, but no doctrine of grace, we'll be a very fragile culture, and we will break as a church. But if we preach a gospel of grace, if we preach a gospel of grace, and if we live a gospel of grace, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following, that that will be a powerful witness to our community. 1 John four eleven. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Their culture was completely changed. Everything they did was now marked by the gospel. And as a result, they changed the culture. The Bible describes it as they turned the world upside down. As this gospel of grace took over their community. Their great apologetic was, oh, how they love one another. We seem surprised by this. Jesus promised this, by this you will know that all of you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 17 says that they may be one so that the world may know. Yes, brothers and sisters, we are to love the world, absolutely. But I fear that too quickly we adopt the mantra of one old church that says, who is my customer and what does he or she want? Instead, we need to be asking the question, who is my brother and sister, and how can I love them with the love of Christ? Yes, we are to love those who haven't yet believed, of course. But the Bible says in Galatians that we are to especially love those of the household of faith. It seems that Jesus knew what he was talking about, that a community united in love, formed by the gospel, was quite compelling to the world. So how will we impact our culture? How will we know that the gospel is taking root and we're experiencing renewal? Yes, we will find ourselves devoted steadfastly to these rhythms. And as we do, as we saw in this early church, that it will begin to establish a gospel culture in our church. And it will be compelling. The way we fellowship with the Lord, the way we fellowship with one another, the way we break bread together, the way we pray together. 
that the Lord will add to our number. So we have to ask the question, so what? Number one, what are your rhythms? Will you devote yourself, even after this is done, to those rhythms of the early church? Will you be steadfast in those things, trusting the Lord? And will you ask the Lord, God, don't just give us gospel doctrine. Don't just give us a weekly agenda. God, would you give us a community as we saw here, selling everything, giving everything, all praying together, worshiping together, loving one another. God, would you give us those rhythms? And God, would you give us a culture of grace? And may we trust that to be compelling to the world around us. Let's pray.